There is a story about a Zen teacher who was um, giving a Dharma talk in English, and English was not the teacher's first language. And in the spaces between the words, while the teacher was searching for words in English, the teacher fell asleep while giving their own Dharma talk. (laughs) And uh, the colleague who told me this story, Gil Fronsdahl, said, I aspire to be so relaxed (laughs) that I could fall asleep while giving a Dharma talk. (laughs) I have that same aspiration and (laughs) And today, my colleagues actually reminded me of this as as we walked in here, because I have very low energy today. And uh, I even commented, I don't even have, I can't even muster the energy to have any adrenaline before the talk, which is really unusual. So we'll see how this goes. (laughs) (laughs) And the laughter helps to brighten my energy, which is partly why I told the story, to help lift the energy for myself. So tonight I wanted to share um, some poems, in particular one text that's composed of 16 poems. And the text is called the Atakavaga. It's found in the Sutta Nipata. And it's actually it's a, it's a kind of a favorite text of mine. I, um, I was asked at one point when I was in teacher training to teach a day-long retreat on this topic, on this text. And um, Gil asked me to do this. And um, I said, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, study it. So I spent six months studying this text and it has become one of my favorite texts. And so I, I probably won't, I'm not going to be able to, you know, go over the entire thing tonight. I'm not going to even try. But what I'd like to do is to offer some of the flavor of the teaching of this particular text. The text itself, the Atakavaga, Ataka basically means eight, and Vaga means chapter or book. And so this is the title of it in English, would be the Book of the Eights. And there's some question about why on earth it would be called that, because there are 16 poems, and none of them are limited to anything like eight verses or anything like that. So they're not about sets of eight or anything, so... There's no particular clear reason why they're called the Book of the Eights, and yet that is what they're called. Um, the language of these poems, I think there's general, there's general um, agreement with the uh, scholars who study the Pali texts that, that these, um, these suttas are fairly old within the strata of the Pali canon they have a kind of a different flavor to them. Um, 
many of the the teachings are very codified and um, you know there's a lot of repetition and a lot of um, lists that are used and in this teaching it's much more you get a picture actually of the Buddha being somebody kind of just wandering around India and meeting up with people and they ask him questions and he responds so it's got a kind of different flavor to it. You get a little bit of a different picture of the Buddha in this teaching. And um, the other reasons, another reason why the scholars think that this is an older text is that the language, the Pali that's used in this text is, um, it's more archaic. And that some scholars say, well, the, the fact that their poems might account for that but the, the kind of real thing that indicates they're an older strata of the teaching is that it's one of the few teachings that's referred to in other places in the text, in terms of it being a text. There are places where um, the monastics are asked, have you memorized that Atakavaga? And so it's referred to in that way as, as almost being like a teaching um, poems, teaching poems, to memorize and allow to uh, infuse or inform your practice. So the uh, the text as a whole has a, the main theme that is repeated over and over in pretty much all the poems in some fashion is that it's a, um, a reflection on clinging and the drawbacks of clinging. Clinging to sense pleasure and clinging to views are both highlighted in this, uh, in this teaching. And it covers these teachings from different perspectives. And so some of the poems are referring to or coming from the perspective of what it's like to be somebody who's clinging, who's an ordinary person who's not been exposed to the teachings. So from the perspective of an ordinary person who's not particularly uh, um, practiced. there's There's some poems about that how the ordinary person is in the world. And then there's a set of poems that um, relates to how somebody who's on the path works with these. And then there's a set of poems that describe someone who's free from clinging. So these three um, poems, these three flavors, and when I started studying this, the, the comments by Tanisaro Bhikkhu were particularly helpful around this text, and he said it's really useful to recognize which of these three flavors is happening as you read a particular poem. Is it about the ordinary person? Is it about the person in training? Or is it about the liberated person? And you get slightly different um, teachings from each of those angles. And then there's 
some verses that actually describe the training of how to move from being an ordinary person to being a liberated person. So I want to share some of these with you. So for an ordinary person, their relationship to clinging, clinging to sense pleasure. If one, oh, and all of these poems, um, some of them are translated, well, they're different translators. Um, some I've taken from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, some from Bhikkhu Virado, other from some other Sadatisa, some other um, other translators. But for in all cases, I have altered the translation slightly to be gender neutral. If one, a longing, longing for sensual pleasure, achieves it, yes, they're enraptured at heart. The mortal gets what they want. But if for that person, longing, desiring, the pleasures diminish, they're shattered as if shot with an arrow. One who is greedy is overpowered with weakness and trampled by trouble, for pain invades them as water a cracked boat. Longing for what's over or for what's to come, yearning for pleasures in the present and pleasures of the past, those who are greedy for pleasure, hunting for it, deranged, selfish, have entered the wrong road. Look at them, floundering amidst their cherished possessions like fish in a dwindling stream. So some of these images actually have come to me at one point, this image of fish in a dwindling stream. Actually, my mind felt like that in one retreat. I was sitting there watching my mind, like flopping, looking for something, looking for something that would satisfy it. And, and the image of the fish flopping arose in my mind and it, it actually brought some humor into my mind. Look at this mind flopping around, looking for pleasure. I think this may be some of the reason why we're encouraged to memorize these things. And then something about clinging to views, some of the drawbacks of clinging to views and how an ordinary person relates to views. Abiding by fixed opinions and pleased with themselves, they say, my opponent's a fool, they're no expert. Upon whatever basis they regard their opponent a fool is the same upon which they regard themselves as an expert. To the extent that they rate themselves expert, they despise anyone else who makes the same claim. Those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. And then a questioner asks the Buddha, those who maintain a view and dispute, saying this alone is true, is criticism all they experience? Do not they do not they indeed also receive praise? And the Buddha responds, what they receive is trifling, not enough to bring them any peace of mind. I say there are only two consequences of dispute, praise and criticism. Seeing this, you should not dispute, regarding instead non-dispute as the grounds for peace. Peace. 
So pointing to several things here about views. One of the um, key pieces is attachment to views. It's pointed to in several places. Um, Those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. And attached and regarding oneself an expert. It's not necessarily saying, at least here, it's not necessarily saying views are bad, but that attachment to views is something to be on the lookout for. And the, um, one of the ways to be on the lookout for it is by noticing whether there's dispute, whether there's quarrels. The, the ground for conflict, the Buddha points to here and in some other places in the texts in general, but also elsewhere in the Antakavaga, the, the Buddha points to um, this attachment to views as being the root source of conflict. Any conflict in the world coming back to attachment to views. This is what's true. Anything else is wrong. And that, that framing is, is uh, often used in the text to describe attachment to views. When somebody says, this is what's true. Everything else is false. Really highlighting that distinction of um, picking up something as truth as opposed to recognizing this is a view. And I I hope to have some more time to to explore some of the ways this teaching talks about views. But I'd like to to, um, kind of go back to the overarching uh, direction of this teaching and then explore a little bit what does this teaching have to say or how does it describe someone who's free? And does it describe a liberated person? What I found in exploring this and in reflecting on the descriptions in here, the poems about liberated people, is that liberation is described in terms of the person who is free and qualities of that person, and descriptions of how they are in the world. It's not described as something separate from the one who is free. So here's, a, here's, a, here's some verses describing someone who's free. A questioner said to the Buddha, I want to ask you about the perfect person There are these people, those people we call one who is calmed. Can you tell me how they they see things and how they behave? The Buddha responds, one who is calmed, who has extinguished all cravings before the time the body disintegrates into nothing, who has no concern with how things began or how they will end, and no fixation with what happens in between. Such a one has no preferences. They have no anger, no fear, and no pride. 
Nothing disturbs their composure and nothing gives them cause for regret. They are wise who are restrained in speech. They have no longing for the future and no grief for the past. There are no views or opinions that lead them. They can see detachment from the entangled world of sense impressions. They do not conceal anything and there is nothing they hold on to. Without acquisitiveness or envy, they remain unobtrusive. They have no disdain or insult for anyone. They are not full of themselves or addicted to pleasure. They are gentle and alert with no blind faith and show no aversion to anything. The sage, free from greed and selfishness, does not speak of oneself as among those who are superior, equal, or inferior. The sage regards nothing in the world as one's own and does not grieve because of what does not exist. Not blindly following religious teachings, such a one is called peaceful. And so it's a description To me, it's a description of a very, it's recognizable in a way. It's, I mean, we can imagine in a way someone being calmed and peaceful and wise. And the descriptions are a lot about what they are not, how they do not behave. They are not angry, not fearful, they don't have pride, they're not fixated, they have no preferences, they don't have blind faith, they have no aversion, no comparisons, nothing relied on. So it's, it's what they're free of. It's a lot of the description, and we've been talking about that. That freedom is not about acquiring. It's release. Freedom is release. There are a few positive descriptions here of how the mind might be experienced, the qualities of the mind. Calm, wise, gentle, alert, composed, peaceful. And elsewhere, in other parts of the the teaching, there are other descriptions. They're mindful. They see and know. They understand they are equanimous. So to me, these, this, is, this is inspiring actually, that the description of liberation in this teaching is described, it's describing the liberated state not in terms of some abstract idea, but in terms of the qualities and actions of people who are free. And in this teaching, one of the things I also find inspiring is that um, the whole thing, the whole flavor of the teaching is very much what I would call a this-worldly teaching. The, the descriptions of freedom, the descriptions of the practice are very grounded in what what seems very recognizable. It's not 
a metaphysical teaching of some kind of um, freedom from rebirth. There are a couple of places in this text where it could potentially refer to freedom from rebirth, but it also could just refer to letting go of clinging to the future. And so this, this, the flavor of this teaching actually contrasts pretty strongly to the standard Theravada perspective of liberation where there is this metaphysical alteration of being that means one is no longer subject to taking birth. And in this teaching, this is not what is of interest It is a teaching that is interested in looking at what is freedom here and now? What does it mean in this very life? And how can this happen in this very life? One scholar in uh, reflecting on this particular aspect of this text said, and the name of this scholar is Grace Burford, Uh, she wrote her graduate thesis on this text. And there's a book, she wrote a book that her graduate thesis thesis was published as a book and that was one of my main resources in my six months of study. She wrote, the Atakavaga is exceptional even within the early Buddhist literature in its non-metaphysical presentation of the highest good achievable by humans but it is significant as an example of how the Buddhist ideal goal can be presented without all the usual problematic cosmological and metaphysical accessories that accompany it in its traditional Theravada doctrine. Another scholar, Luis Gomez, says, the Atakavaga sets out to find or describe a practical solution to human sorrow, not merely the abstract sorrow of rebirth, but the everyday sorrow of strife and aggression. And so that's one of the the flavors of what I really love about this text. And it's a very, it points to freedom in this life, this possibility, what does it look like? And then there's these poems that describe the path to liberation. And these include those poems about how somebody is who's in training. And so the path to liberation is basically describing how one should engage being on the path. And so I'll read, I'll read this. I'll read some of this one, one text. There's a, several of them that do this kind of uh, exploration. And as I read this, Listen to see if it sounds familiar. The questioner asks the Buddha, now venerable sir, speak about the path of practice. And the Buddha responds, a person should not have covetous eyes, should close one's ears to ordinary chatter, should not be greedy for flavors, one should not cherish anything in the world. One should be meditative, not footloose, 
One should desist from worry. One should not be indolent. One should live in lodgings where there is little noise. Check. One should not sleep too much. One should be devoted to wakefulness and keen endeavor. One should abandon laziness, deception. One should not fear blame. One should nor be conceited when praised. One should drive out greed, selfishness, anger, and malicious speech. One should not be a boaster nor speak scheming words. One should not cultivate impudence nor utter quarrelsome speech. One should not be drawn into telling a lie nor deliberately be treacherous. One should not despise others for their lowly way of life or wisdom or precepts and practices. If ascetics or ordinary people irritate one with their talkativeness, one should not respond harshly, for the peaceful do not retaliate. Knowing the Buddha's teaching, an ever-attentive person who investigates it should train in it. Knowing the cooling of desire as peace, one should not be negligent in applying the teachings. With regard to the teachings, with regard to the Blessed One's teaching, one who is diligent should constantly venerate it by following his example. And so a couple of pieces there, the description of one who is in training, it sounds a lot like, I mean, the same kind of language of somebody who's free, only it is should be, as opposed to is. And so it's, and, and then these last two, um, or last couple of things. If ascetics or ordinary pe- people irritate one with their talkativeness, one should not respond harshly, for the peaceful do not retaliate. And with regards to the Blessed One's teaching, one who is diligent should constantly venerate it by following his example. So to me, this points to a teaching that is encouraging us to model freedom, to, in the process of training, seeing that there is irritation, not respond with irritation, but instead model peacefulness. I wanna talk about this for a little bit because this for me has been such an amazing teaching, especially in daily life. So this points to essentially a, a, a little bit of um, the notion of the, the, um, the path and the goal are not so different in a way. And so if you want to be peaceful, act peacefully. If you want to have love, act loving. If you want to be loving, act loving. And so it's pointing to this this modeling 
And all of these shoulds, you know, as I said, it's like that, it's almost like the, the sutta could have been taking the previous one and changing is to should be. So I've explored this some in my own practice and found that there's a very powerful edge of practice around this, this kind of teaching. And it takes a lot of honesty and a lot of integrity to explore because it could be, it could sound like if people irritate one with their talkativeness, repress the irritation and pretend you're peaceful. That's not what works. What does seem to have some uh, power though is to acknowledge and recognize, oh, there's irritation. Really fully knowing there's irritation and yet exploring the possibility I sometimes use the language, not seeing if you cannot let the irritation leak out of any pore. Completely, fully knowing in the mind, in the heart mind, that this irritation is happening, and yet exploring the possibility of behaving in a way that is peaceful. So this calls on intention. It calls on the intention to cultivate peace, even as we are feeling irritation. And so it's, it's drawing on that, that wisdom or that wish or that aspiration. May there be peace, not through repressing the irritation, but also exploring, you know, how might this irritation be leaking out of my system? It can be in very subtle ways just a gesture or expression on the face or quickness of movement and exploring what might it be, you know, so modeling. And this is where there was a lot of, um, you know, for great fortune for those who lived at the time of the Buddha and at the time when there were a lot of enlightened um, monks walking around. You could see how they are. You could, you could explore modeling their behavior. And so we might have to a little bit conjure it up in our minds or, or model it after people that we do admire, such as the Dalai Lama or others. Others is the, the, the people that uh, Greg mentioned in Burma, those, the, the monks in Burma that we, we met. Just modeling the, the deep peace of the one Sayadaw that our colleagues named the angel Sayadaw, or the happiness and delight of the, of the other monk we sometimes called the happy Sayadaw. And so exploring this, one practical example from my own practice, I sometimes talk about at this point in retreat I was practicing this kind of thing around impatience. And I had taken on a study of impatience because I had noticed that impatience was a major, a major force in my life. And so I began to get curious about it, you know, looking at it, seeing it whenever it arose, 
noticing it, curious. And at one point I was, I was wandering around a, um, a drugstore and I was shopping and, and um, I noticed actually, what I noticed was that I was moving quickly and picking up things and throwing them in my basket. And, and that gave me a little bit of a, oh, what's happening here? And I noticed that I was impatient. It's kind of a little bit of a wake up. This, the, the way my body was acting. My body was acting impatient. And so I picked up this exploration around modeling patience while fully recognizing, yes, there is impatience, but what might it mean to act as though I were really patient? And so I slowed down. I reached slowly out to the shelf, picked up the bottle of shampoo, and placed it very carefully in my basket. I did this with several things and and just really it was it was like this edge of knowing the the feeling of the impatience with this kind of intention to see what might it mean to know that and to behave as if i were patient and what surprised me this was one of the the first times it really dawned on me how this works and how powerful it can be within about 30 or 40 seconds, the impatience had vanished and the mind was patient. The impatience had gone away. And I understood it as, as there was not, it wasn't that it was a repression of the impatience, but it was basically that in very kind of subtle ways, the, the impatience had been being reinforced through the action that that was a way that the impatience was feeding itself. And when recognizing the impatient quality in the mind, I uh, created the conditions for not letting it leak out into my behavior. It was like the foot came off the gas pedal and that state of mind could just release. And so this is, a, this is a practice that we can do when we're in the grocery store, when we're walking down the street, when we're driving. What mind states are arising? And how is that leaking out in how you are engaging? Really important, I can't emphasize enough to not repress the inner state in doing this. It's not about repression. It's about connecting to that intention. It's like that intention has a rebound effect on our minds with that intention and engaging in a way that follows that intention. And now a little bit about, a little more dive into what this text has to say about views and clinging to views. There's views, we've talked about views here in this 
we haven't done a whole teaching around views, but there's different kinds of views. The deepest level of views is, you know, the, the view I am. That's a form of a view. And then there's other views perhaps around, um, you know, what we take to be hmm, metaphysical reality. You know, this was a big category of views at the time of the, the Buddha that people found and explored and thought that wisdom and uh, understanding would come by knowing the nature of the cosmos. So there were views about the cosmos being infinite or being finite or being stretched in one direction or another direction. Or, um, so that there, were, there were all kinds of views about metaphysical reality, so speculative views. And, and we may have views like this too. They may not be so um, common in our culture. Um, but but to, to, you know, the, the metaphysical views of, you know, even something like um, your views about rebirth are in the realm of metaphysical views, something beyond what we can actually directly know in this, exper- in this experience. And then there's a whole other terrain of views, just our ordinary views in our, in our lives and the views that are connected with greed, aversion, and delusion, those, those views that keep us engaged in those, in those patterns. And so clinging to views is actually understood to be one of the key ways that we suffer. And actually, you know, they're, they're kind of almost at the root of how we suffer because even sense desire, clinging to sense desire, um, is based in a view that having that pleasure or getting rid of that unpleasant is what's going to make me happy. And it's based in that delusion. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the clinging to views is also recognized as being one of the main ways or, or the, one of the keys for why we live in conflict. Why we have wars. It's rooted in the human mind why we have wars. And so this to me, this is actually, you know, seeing this, this was one of um, a very powerful moment in my practice at one point, watching my mind around anger and seeing the thoughts around it, noticing what the mind did with anger. And and in particular, when there was anger at a particular person at one point, I noticed this arising of a wish that the other person suffer. That was a painful recognition to see that. And yet it also opened my heart to some level of compassion because there was the recognition that the seeds of war are right here. That that, that 
that arising of anger connected to that wish that the other person suffer, that's where war begins. And so a kind of an understanding, not just, that it's not just personal, but how this conditions dispute, quarrels, anger, picking up of, of weapons and harming each other. And so the, the Buddha points to views as being the source of this conflict. So really worth looking at views. And one thing that's interesting in this teaching, and it, it, it came up in the description of a liberated, liberated person. A liberated person is described as someone who does not cling to any views at all. maybe even deeper than that, because one description or the translation, it's hard again to know exactly what the, the, I don't read Pali, so I don't know the exact words. I try reading, when I study a text, I read multiple translations to try to get a sense of what's being said. But there's one place in describing a liberated person, there are no views or opinions that lead them. That's a pretty strong statement. One who is pure has no preconceived view about anything in the world. Having abandoned delusion and pride, they remain without attachment. Therefore, by what view would they go? One who said, who is attached argues over religious teaching. But how and about what can you argue with one who is without attachment? There is nothing they either take up or throw off. They are indeed free of every view in the world. Abandon, abandoning what has been taken up, free from any basis of attachment, they do not rely even upon knowledge. Amongst those in dispute, they do not take sides. They do not revert to any grasping of opinions whatsoever. And so the, one of the teachings in the Atakavaga around this non-attachment to views, one of the keys in terms of the training. Interestingly, I did not see anywhere in there where it said, one who is in training should not hold the view of the teaching. One who's in training should not hold any view whatsoever. It does not say that. There's some debate about this particular aspect of the teaching, whether um, uh, the, um, the teaching around freedom from views is something that should be modeled on the path. But in my read of this text, this is my own looking at it, when I read through it from this view that Tanisaro Bhikkhu suggested of when it's describing someone who's attached or, or an ordinary person and when it's describing someone who's liberated, 
the, place, the places where it talks about freedom from views, freedom from all views, the place it talks about that is when they are liberated. And the training around freedom from views in, in the training looks more like one should refrain from quarrels. One should refrain from retaliation. What's interesting too, however, is, um, I think this is an interesting piece. Let's see if I can find the quote on this. The attachment to views. Interestingly, elsewhere in this text, the Buddha acknowledges, yes, there's truth. But the, um, the um, inst- instruction around not clinging to views points to basically, that whether or not a view is related to truth is irrelevant. It still should not be clung to. And so here's what it says. A person who associates themselves with certain views, considering them as best and making them supreme in the world, they say, because of that, that all other views are inferior. Therefore, they are not free from contention with others. So regardless of whether it's true or not, the Buddha encourages us not to cling to it. And so this, um, to me, this, this points to something very profound about wisdom and what wisdom is interested in. Our culture, our, and not just our culture, I think human culture often, is interested in propositions and whether propositions are true or not. Interested in statements. Is this statement true or false? And we feel like it's important to know whether it's true or false that that's where wisdom will lie. And yet the wisdom that we are cultivating here, the wisdom that frees us from greed, aversion, and delusion, that moves in the direction of liberation, that wisdom is not interested in the objective truth or falseness of a proposition. It's interested in that a thought is arising in the mind and it's a thought. And a thought is ceasing in the mind. So the wisdom is interested in the, not in the the objective truth of our thoughts or our beliefs, but in the fact that they arise and cease. This is a different kind of approach to truth. What is true about any experience is that it is arising and ceasing. 
There's another text, another one of my favorites. I've got a lot of them, a lot of favorite texts that points to the kind of view that might be useful to hold while one is in training. It's a a text called Views. The Ditti Sutta, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, 1093, for those of you who are interested in these things. And one of the other things I love about the sutta is that it's a lay person having a conversation with um, ascetics from other traditions. So this is Anandapindika, the Buddha's um, patron, who is a householder, not a monastic. And the uh, uh, Ananda Pindika was wandering one day and came upon these ascetics from other traditions and, and they, they had been just talking and chatting with each other. And, um, and they said, they saw Ananda Pindika coming and they hushed each other saying, be quiet, don't make any noise. Here comes Ananda Pindika, the householder, a disciple of the, contemplat- the contemplative Gautama. He's one of those disciples clad in white, who lives in Savati. These people are fond of quietude and speak in praise of quietude. Maybe if he perceives our group is quiet, he will consider it worth his while to come our way. (laughs) So the wanderers fell silent. And when he approached them, they said, tell us, Anandapindika, what views does the contemplative Gautama have? Anandapindika Holding to Sila says, Venerable sirs, I don't entirely know what views the Blessed One has. And, and they seem to think this was, you know, they, they, they kind of say, well, well, so you don't know what views the contemplative Gautama has. Well, perhaps you can tell us what views the monastics have then. I don't even know entirely what views the monks have. So you don't know what views Gautama has and you don't know what views the monks have. Well, maybe you can tell us what views you have. And, and he says, it won't be difficult for me to tell you the views I have, but please let the venerable ones expound each in line with, it, with your position. Then it won't be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have. And so when this was said, each, there were like 10 there, and each one said something different. One said, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. Another, the cosmos is not eternal. This is the only true view, everything else is worthless. The cosmos is finite, the cosmos is infinite, the soul and body are the same, the soul is one thing, the body is another. These kind of metaphysical views were what they were talking about, each one saying, this is what's true. And so clearly, they can't all be true because they directly contradict each other. When this was said, after they had all expounded their views, Ananda Pindicus gave the householders a little teaching. <laughs> he said, as for the venerable one who says, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless. This is the sort of view I have. That view arises from one's own inappropriate attention, 
or independence on the words of another. Now this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress, suffering. This venerable one adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. And so pointing out how holding to views, holding to something that is simply a construction of mind, that has the nature to arise and pass, holding to something that is inconstant is suffering. And so then they say, okay, well, we've told you our views, tell you, you tell us yours now. And this is what Anandapindika says. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. And that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress or suffering is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. And they tried his same argument on him, basically saying, so that view has been brought into being and fabricated, so you're adhering to that stress. And Anandapindika replied, Venerable sirs, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently originated, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is suffering. Whatever is suffering is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it is actually present, I also discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. Basically recognizing that clinging to view also needs to be released. So this view holds in itself the possibility for transcending views. That possibility of recognizing, oh, a view is arising again. You know, so this view, this, 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 in some ways we would say this, this view is pointing to truth. And yet even that, holding to that, would be stressful, would be suffering. And so seeing, oh, this is a view that's arising, this is a view that's ceasing. Understanding it as a view, as an impermanent, inconstant phenomenon. So I offer this reflection this evening. For me, this is inspirational, this teaching, this text around the freedom possible in this life. And teachings given by householders that contain deep wisdom pointing to freedom. 
in this very life. Not sometime in the future. That possibility. The poems that uh, Greg mentioned, the enlightenment poems of the nuns. In any moment, putting out a candle, the mind can be free right now in this life. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.